GoLongTD.com, humanizing pro football journalism. Already, as promised, here he is, the great, the great Gary Myers. Man, it is awesome to have you here to talk about this book, Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football. Uh, Gary, we've we've talked on the phone. We were just kind of BSing here before we hit record. It's it's so cool as a I, I feel like an old man, but I as we were kind of chatting as a younger sports writer who has read your stuff, watched you on TV growing up. Uh, to be sitting here talking with with a legend is is an honor, man. So thanks so much for doing this. Well, uh, the legend part, uh, I guess that's debatable, but uh, it's 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 fun. You know, we have that Syracuse connection and. Uh, uh, it, it's always fun when different generations of Syracuse grads meet up in the business. So it's, it's, I'm really looking forward to our chat today. No doubt about it, man. It's, uh, I, I wish we could share some some Bayheim war stories, but I think you just uh-huh. you just missed out on those. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's oh, no, good or he, bad. He, just, he, he yelled at me a few, a few times when he was an assistant coach. So oh. So you you had your experience there, yeah, yeah. yeah. The book's amazing. I, I'm working through it about halfway. Um, gosh, it's it's you know, there's so many stories written about players and what they're dealing with when they're done playing this this beautiful, violent, dangerous sport that is football. There's been so many books written, but yours is unique. It, it really is. I, I think that you get such a sense for the true brotherhood that this 1986 New York Giants team had and then how they kind of went off and, and tried to find themselves when they were done playing. But, I mean, you've covered this team. You've been around these players. You know them better than than anybody in the business. What, what kind of led you to this project, right? I feel like I was just doing this book tour myself. Right? That's, that's what we have to ask first off. Like, how did yeah. you get into this? Because – you got to love it. I mean, you better have a passion for what you're writing about because it's going to be on your mind every day. Uh, no question. And this is my sixth book, and it's by far my favorite and I think my best. Um, I, I really wanted a, to do a New York-centric book. Not that it would only appeal to New York people, but it would be a bit on a New York team, about a New York team. And I, I've just been fascinated by the whole subject of life after football. Uh, and what these guys go through, you know, playing such a violent sport. And, um, so the way to combine those two things was to write a, a book about life after football for the 86 Giants, which of the Giants four Super Bowl teams, uh, by far is the most popular and, and revered, uh, in the New York area. You know, it had Parcells and Belichick and Lawrence Taylor and Phil Sims and Harry Carson, Carl Banks, Mark Bavaro. You just go on and on. And, um, but I didn't tie, I didn't want the book to be 300 pages of depressing stories about, you know, these challenges these guys are facing or, or are, are faced with now and experiencing, you know, the mental health challenges and, and financial and emotional challenges. I mean, I, I think story after story, just limiting it to that would be really depressing. So I, the way I balanced it off was, Talking about the brotherhood that these guys formed, and you have to remember this is the pre-free agency days. Yeah. So the core of that team had been intact now, you know, for two, three years when they went into the 86 season. And they didn't have the 30% roster turnover that they have now with free agency. So those guys kind of grew up together. And when they 
they came together and they won that championship, which was their expectation that year going into training camp. It brought them even closer together. And Parcells always said, you know, that these guys form a blood, a blood kinship when they win a championship together. So I told a story in the book, throughout the book, about how they really did become a close-knit team, and a lot of it had to do with practical jokes that they played on each other and things of that nature. But what really makes this team unique is that 37 years later, the bond is still really strong. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that these guys still live in the metropolitan New York area, and they see each other all the time at events, you know, card shows or giant reunions or, um, you know, whatever. And, and if something, if a player is experiencing a problem, the first phone call goes to Harry Carson, who considers himself captain for life of this team. And he basically rallies the troops. And, and whether a guy needs financial help or he needs emotional support, they, they get together and, and they provide that. And I've been around a lot of teams, you know, over 40 years of covering the league. And I know you've been around a lot of teams also. Uh, championship teams tend to form a bond, but I'd be hard pressed to find that bond is as strong 37 years later as it was when they won the championship together. And that's what makes this Giants team really special. It is unique. And I love how you start the book with your introduction, hanging out with Bill Parcells. I was and just blown away by how he'll just write checks for guys. Yeah. Right. If somebody's in need um, and, you know, he's just kind of tending to his horses. Right. He's going to these horse races and and losing money. It's a hobby. And, you know, but you can tell his his he feels almost in, indebted to his players, kind of looks at them like they're all his sons. And I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. I get the sense he almost feels kind of responsible. Right. If somebody's really going through a hard time, you know, financially, emotionally, physically, anything. And he wants to be the guy that they go to for help in any possible way. Did that, did that surprise you that he was that um, connected himself as the coach to all these players? And, and it's so quick to just say, take this money and help yourself. Yeah, no, I, that thing about the $4 million that he's paid out to a total of about 20 players. Now to total of $4 million, I want people to get the idea that he's giving $4 million <clears throat> to any one player, but, I mean, I, I knew that he had remained close to a lot of these guys who, you know, call him on his birthday and they send him Father's Day cards. I mean, that's so unusual considering that he was such a pain in the ass to play for. Right, right. He was such a hard-driving coach who demanded so much of these guys physically. You know, these were the days where two days in pads in training camp, that was the normal practice. Now is almost if you put the players in pads once a week in training camp, somebody complains to the union about it, you know, and, and during the season, his players were in pads all the time, really a physically demanding coach um, and had a love hate relationship with the players. But to a man now, all these years later, they can't imagine what their lives would have been like without him and the life lessons that they learned from him. Um, Phil Simms says there is almost as in a day that goes by that he uses something that Parcells taught him. 
And he does feel a responsibility to these players because he knows that they're suffering physically and mentally. And, and perhaps it was, you know, because of how hard he was on them. And I don't want to say he feels guilty about it, but I think he feels responsible for looking after them. And he's in a fortunate financial position now where he's put away all the money he thinks he needs to live comfortably the rest of his life. He has three daughters. You know, he set money aside, you know, whether it's in a, in a fund or whatever, however he's done that. And then he's got a pile of money that he says is for his friends who, who need money. And he considers these former players his friends. And it's not like they can just call him up and say, hey, Bill, you know, I need $25,000 to do an addition on my house. No, he's not going to give him money for that. But if he, if they have um, uh, medical bills or lawyer bills or, um, you know, tax issues where they got to get money to the IRS, he, he just sits down and writes the check. He, he, and it just, it's not just the Giants, although it's predominantly the Giants. Ty, he told me a story about, uh, and I don't want to name the player, but somebody he was really close to when he coached the Patriots. And I, I had the story in the book, and um, the guy said, I can't remember now, it was like sixty or $65,000 that the guy was short. And he said his pension didn't kick into the next year. And he promised Bill, I'll pay you back. And Bill never gives us money with the expectation of being repaid. Player wants to repay him. Of course, he's going to take the money, but he's not going to send a collection agency after him. Um, so I listen. Maybe other coaches have done this. Uh, I'd never heard of it. Uh, some owners might do it, but you know, owners are in a different position. Most of these guys are billionaires. Bill Parcells is not a billionaire, but he's certainly comfortable and made a lot of money coaching and then endorsements and TV work and things of that nature. So he, he feels an obligation of sorts to to help these guys if they need it. it it's incredible because it's not something that, to my knowledge, anybody knew he was doing before yeah. your book. It's not like he's out there publicizing this. A lot of, a lot of times you hate to be cynical, but you know, um, somebody at Bill Parcell's stature, who's larger than life in the hall of fame yeah. does something good. And there's the ESPN special or NFL network, or there's it's, it's out there somehow we know about it. I mean, he's just doing this out of the, the kindness in his heart. I feel like maybe you tell me if I'm wrong, like over, over time, he, he's got a little softer, a little more gentle. I called him up for blood and guts and he was just, I'm, I'm a nobody. So gracious with his time drops everything to chat. Oh, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> I don't care. That. Nobody. No, he's become a very compassionate man. Yeah. I think he's always been that way, but it's hard to really show it in the ways that he's showing it now when he was coaching them. You know, if the player came to him and had a problem when he was coaching him, it's not like he turned his back on him. He did more trying to straighten out Lawrence Taylor than people ever realized. And that's why he's so resentful when they think, when he's called an enabler that he turned his back on Taylor's problems because he was the greatest player in the NFL. And and he just let all that stuff slide. That couldn't be further from the truth. He was pushing Taylor and other players into rehab centers and, and, and really trying hard to get them straightened out. But, you know, I, I just assume, because this is what I've read and been told, you know, that if an addict doesn't want to 
There's nothing you can do. I mean, you do interventions and get them in rehab centers, and then two minutes after they're out of the rehab center, they're back doing cocaine. You know, what is Bill Parcells supposed to do about that? And so he's he's very, um, he's just very disappointed that people think that he just didn't care enough about his players, and Taylor in particular, that um, he would just let it go because he was a great player. Ty, before there was an NFL drug testing policy, Parcells was drug testing the players on his own. Really? I don't know if that was permitted by, by the, by the PA, but he didn't want guys on drugs screwing up his team. Right. And he's if, about winning. He wants to win games. Yeah. But if they were, if it was a player that he, you know, listen, if, if a guy was the last guy on his roster and was, rejecting anything Parcells is telling him, basically get your crap together or um, you're out of here. Um, he'd cut him, obviously. But for the most part, regardless of who it was on the roster, if you had a drug problem, he wanted to know about it to try to get him help. But he also didn't want the guy um, polluting his locker room and, and right. getting other players involved. I mean, he very, Bobby Johnson is one of the key guys that I wrote about in the book. And he had a really bad cocaine problem that, um, nobody knew about because everybody was writing about Lawrence Taylor. And Parcells wound up trading him the year after the Super Bowl to San Diego. Bobby didn't make the Chargers team. And so the last game he ever played was in the Super Bowl. And, and he had, he was living on a park bench in Nashville. Three months, three years rather, after he was the key contributor to the Giants' first Super Bowl team. And now, fortunately for Bobby, he's got his life straightened out, uh, and he's a really good guy. It's just cocaine got a hold of him, and he didn't know how to to beat it. Unbelievable! I, we could we could spend you know an hour on every single one of these players yeah. that you're right about. So everybody, please. Do yourself a favor and get once a giant. I, I want to get into Mark Bavaro with you, though. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned to you. You are Mr. Tight End. <laughs> yeah, it, it, he's one tight end I wasn't able to track yeah. down. So I'm, I'm working on this book, I believe, yeah, 2021. Because it was right when uh, our son was born. Son was born, signed the book contract, and started traveling the country. Hey, honey, got to go, got to go hang out with Jeremy Shockey down in Miami Beach, and you know Mike yeah. Dicka. <laughs> but Mark Bavaro, I, I think I, I reached. Interjecting yeah. thing. I, I was around the Giants when Jeremy Shockey was a rookie, and do you know who his babysitter on that team was? And I use that term loosely. The guy who was basically in charge of looking after him. To make Dan sure. Campbell. He was, a, he was a wild child. As you probably know, I'm sure you know. The veteran tight end who was in charge of looking after Jeremy Shockey was Dan Campbell. Exactly. Yep, Dan Campbell. Who had they hit him for his shoulders and was a wild man himself. At least exactly. He was kind of wild. Uh, I, I, I had no idea what he was doing off the field, but obviously he's done very well for himself. And what a fun story that was. But it was Campbell and Shockey. And Shockey, I think, was able to stay on course early in his, in his career because of the influence of Dan Campbell. 
No doubt about it. I mean, they'd hit the weight room together after games. You know, Shockey was, he, he's a maniac, man. Uh, for all the hard partying, a lot like Gronk, he would work just as hard. Oh, you know, and, and Gronk looked up to Shockey, but they almost could feel like a little guilt if they were drinking a little too hard, partying a little too hard and wake yeah. up at 3 a.m. and bang out a hundred pushups, right? I and mean, these guys are just wired different. Now, Mark Bavaro's personality is about as opposite as you can get from Jeremy Shockey. Um, that's what, uh, and we talked to this gentleman both for our books, um, Mike Pope, right? He's the connective tissue for so many of these tight ends. Yeah. Just a, a wealth of knowledge. <clears throat> and his stories about Bavaro were great. You know, the, got the pain through practices, through games. Gosh, I think, was it the, I want to say the, the bloody sock that he played with. Um, I got to pull it up that, here. You sure that wasn't Kurt Schilling? <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, here we go. Yeah. One training camp, Bavaro, he refused to say a word about his ill-fitting cleats. It was only when a trainer noticed something was wrong that he asked for one of them to take take it off, and it was just full of blood. So that was the the one Bavaro story I got, and you you had a ton more. So let's start there with how tough of a football player Mark v- Bavaro was. Um, yeah. Because I don't know if a lot, a lot of younger fans r- really understand. Ty, the, the way I explain it, really, he was Gronk before Gronk, but without the sideshow. He was he was that good a player and was definitely on a Hall of Fame track until his knee just he pretty much didn't have anything left of his knee. But you, you're talking about a guy being tough. In the first quarter of a game in 86 against the Saints, he, he broke his jaw. And the x-ray machines at Giant Stadium weren't sensitive enough to fully diagnose it. So basically, you know, you just rub a little dirt on it and go back on the field. He, he shows up in the middle of the second quarter and is tapping Parcells on the shoulder and grunting to him because he can't talk because his jaw is broken. Again, it hadn't been officially diagnosed as being a broken jaw. And Parcells is telling me that you know, he knew how what Bavaro was doing. He's hitting me on the back and grunting, and he means he wants back in the game. And he scored a touchdown at the end of the second quarter. The Giants were down seventeen nothing, and that touchdown brought him back, and they won the game. Next day, he goes to the dentist. He's got a broken jaw. Gets his jaw wired shut. Doesn't miss a game. Is eating eggplant parmesan yeah. on a blend. You know, in a blender. I love that part. That was great. <laughs> I wonder what that tasted like. You know, <laughs> Parmesan in a blender. I, I don't know. But, you know, Mark, you know, the funny thing, his nickname was Rambo. He hated He didn't it. like it. Yeah, he hated that um, nickname, you said. And I didn't know that until he, he was telling me the story because I, I, I don't know if I'm getting this right. Rambo was, um, you know, Celeste Stallone played him and he was a, uh, a war veteran from Vietnam, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And and Mark had an uncle and a cousin who were in, in the military who, who fought in Vietnam, and he thought it was disrespectful that they called him Rambo. But the thing was, they didn't call him Rando, but Rambo because he was tough. It was the first day that the veterans were really around him in minicamp his rookie year, and they called him Rambo because he kind of looked like Stallone. It wasn't because they said, oh, this is the toughest guy I've ever been around. They didn't know that yet. 
<laughs> so it was just because he looked like him. And um, as much as Mark hated the nickname, you know, that if the players find out you hate a nickname, you got no shot of losing that nickname. So they kind of stuck with him his, his entire career. Um, but he was, he was just a really quiet, reserved guy at that point in his life. He, he told me a story that when his kids saw an interview that he did at the Super Bowl in 86, his daughter said to him, Dad, you didn't know how to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, he, he just, he just wasn't into it. You know, Ty, on, on Tuesday, now it's Monday nights, they, they call it, uh, media day at the Super Bowl. It used to be called photo day. So Tuesday of, um, Super Bowl week, the Giants photo day was at, um, the stadium where the, the Angels play. And the, I think the Rams were playing there as well. And so Marcus told it's photo day. But it was a misnomer, really, because after the team photo was taken, then they set these guys up. It's not elaborate like it is now with all the podiums, but the players would be scattered or in different spots, and you'd have a chance to interview them. Bavaro went right to the bus, and they tried to get him off the bus, and they said, what are you doing on the bus? They said, well, they said it was photo day. I already had my picture taken, and now I'm on the bus. And he didn't come out and do any interviews. Little different than Jeremy Shockey and Rob Gronkowski and everything we see in the position today. And I mean, so that season, that '86 season, it's year two for Mark Bavaro. He catches 66 passes for 1,001 yards, four touchdowns, first team All Pro, Pro Bowl, even got some MVP votes. It looks like uh, he he was on track to to be an all time great. Yeah. Has some health issues. Uh, living legend in New York. I mean, New York can just relate to this guy, right? The blue collar, the way he played, the play against San Francisco oh, when he runs he through the whole defense. It. Yeah. He he epitomized the blue collar mentality in, in this area. And you're just referring to, you know, he dragged the 49er defense, including Ronnie Lott, who was riding piggyback on him, um, for like 15 yards. And, and that play really symbolized the type of team that was, and it really symbolized the season with that giant team was really all, all about. Um, Mark, I mean, that, that was just an amazing play, but you know, one of the, one of the funniest stories, maybe my, my favorite funny story in the book, and there's a bunch of them is Bavaro's rookie year. Now he was a pretty good drinker at Notre Dame, which I don't know if many people knew that. Um, <laughs> drank too much probably, and he would probably tell you that too. So his first rookie, his rookie training camp at Pace University in Westchester, which is actually about four miles from where I live. Um, he they finally get the first night off in training camp. He had been there for the rookie part of the training camp, and then the veterans come in, and then Parcells gave him a night off. So they had a team barbecue, and I'm sure he drank a little bit of that. And then uh, they knew his roommate was going to be cut the next day, the next morning. They had gotten word on that. So they wanted to go out and celebrate this guy. So they go bar hopping uh, in town in Clear and Pleasantville. And they wind up at a place called Michael's Pub, uh, which was a fun sports bar kind of place. And Bavaro got uh, blank-faced that night 
I don't know if we can say that word. Oh, we can go ahead. Yeah. Oh, he got shit faced. <laughs> and, um, so he, he's throwing a guy over the bar who probably just looked at him the wrong way, <laughs> literally tossed the guy over the bar, punched his hand through a wall was out of his mind because he was drunk. And so he was permanently banned from Michaels. The campus, Pace University, is maybe two miles from the bar. So he goes back, and uh, they don't have a practice the next morning. They had a team meeting in the practice in the afternoon. The Turk comes and knocks on the door to have his roommate bring the playbook to Parcells because they knew the guy was going to be cut. Mark slept through that. He slept through the team meeting and then dread, was able to drag his ass out of bed. Now that I know I can curse on this, I can tell the story. Oh, yeah. Somewhere. It's encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he drags his ass out of bed, gets to the locker room, gets dressed for practice, and is just dragging. I mean, he was really in bad shape. And he knows he's totally dehydrated. So I don't know how much water he drank or Gatorade, but it was a lot. And he's running his pass routes, and he's not sweating at all. So he knows the fluids that he's intaking is are not doing the job. And he and all the players knew that he was completely hungover, and um, and they're waiting for him to quit. And he said, "I'm not quitting. I'm a rookie. You know, I'm not quitting. I can't. I can't let those guys see that side of me." Well, after a while, he just couldn't do it. So he calls Ronnie Barnes over, the trainer, and Ronnie was a great protector of players. And I'm sure Ronnie knew that he was hungover. So the the locker room was just a few feet off of the edge of the practice field, so it was really, really close. So Ronnie is walking Bavaro to the locker room, and they're going to try to give him some IV fluids. And on their way over, they've passed right by Parcells. And Parcells goes, what the fuck is the matter with this guy? And Ronnie goes, uh, you know, he's just, uh, he's just dehydrated. And Parcells goes, the fuck he is. He's drunk. And almost as he got the words out of his mouth, Bavaro threw up on Parcells' shoes. <laughs> That's amazing. Which, which is not the way I know he's a fourth round pick and the Giants would, you know, we're building a roster, so he wasn't going to get cut. But it's not really the way you want to impress your new boss. Is throwing up on his shoes. And I knew he was not embellishing that story, but I, I had to run it by Parcells who admitted that's exactly what happened. And um, What did Parcells do Like when that happens? He, he didn't get fined, and um, he didn't even buy Parcells a new pair of cleats. In fact, Mike Pope, who you mentioned before, goes up to Bavaro at the team meeting that night, and, and Mark is distraught that he just puked all over Barcelona's shoes. And he and he goes, you know what? Let's look at it this way. I think you might have ingratiated yourself to the veterans on this team. And and from that point forward, you know, Mark was, he was kind of a cult figure. But imagine that, a, a rookie throwing up on a future Hall of Fame coach's shoes and and, and Wanting, you know, living to tell about it in football terms, you know, he didn't get cut. It's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, it I really. Story. 
And I, Ty, I'm telling you, I'm sitting in his li- in his living room as he's telling me this story, and I am just beside myself laughing because he told it. And he told it so funny, you know. As much as he didn't like to talk in those days, that's how articulate and and forthcoming he is now about everything. He's just. I said to him, you know, Mark, you you know how much money you lost out. Because in those days, it really to make money off the field, it really was important, or it was a huge advantage to play in New York. Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't matter, you know. Everything is so closely tied together. But I said, Mark, the fans love you. You're a good-looking guy. You, you played for a Super Bowl championship team. You were a key contributor. You had one of the most iconic plays in team history, dragging those Forty ers down the field. I said, if you only talked. You could have made a fortune. And he goes, yeah, I know. He goes, it just wasn't me in those days. So he, do you think that he was told, man, you're leaving a lot of money on the table in, in the moment? Do you think that was something he was aware of? Because you're right. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I probably should have got a hold of his agent to find out if he was turning down any offers. but um, Or well, if somebody tried to get to him and say, hey, Mark. Because, you know, guys weren't making that much then. Um, and you know, maybe some he needed someone to go to him and say, you know, try to give a little more of yourself in these interviews to impress Madison Avenue, and, and maybe you can get yourself a really nice endorsement deal and make a bunch of money. I don't know if anybody said that to him, but he doesn't seem to regret that. But he realizes he left an awful lot of money on the table. Tiki Barber, he is not right. Tiki kind of mastered that many years later while he was playing, but really. I mean, I think it. You just hit on a perfect. He was so open and honest about everything he's been through. When did things start to take a turn for the worst? I think you kind of pinpointed 2021, really, yeah. with the COVID. Um, and if the excerpts up at the New York Post as well, I believe the headline is "I I wish somehow I would just die." Um, right. He, the suicidal thoughts, it wasn't like one random suicidal thought either. It was months and months yeah. and months. And then he, 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 I can't believe he opened up as much as he did to you. And it speaks to your ability to to just have a conversation with, with Mark as well. But, man, you understand why. He really did detail the pain he was in uh, from the the anxiety, the paranoia, the dizziness, the fogginess, the headaches. Bad turned to worse almost every day, it seemed. But where would where did where'd you start? When did things really start going south for Mark Bavaro? Well, Easter Sunday in 2021, his, his daughter and her family came over to their house to spend the day with Mark and his wife. And the next day, his daughter called him and said that she had tested positive uh, for COVID. And I believe her, the, her daughter's husband did as well. And Mark played golf that Monday. He played golf that Tuesday. He felt fine. Then he started not feeling so good. And he never even tested himself. He knew he had it. He knew what the symptoms were. The vaccine, he hadn't decided yet whether he was going to get the vaccine, but it wasn't available to him. You know, at the beginning, it was difficult to get the vaccine. You know, they did by age group or different demographics. In any event, he, he hadn't been, uh, vaccinated yet. Um, and then 
he, he wound up feeling a bunch of symptoms and, um, two nights in a row, he fainted in his house, once in the kitchen and his wife came running down the steps and, um, and helped him get back onto a chair and she called 911, but, uh, they didn't take him to the hospital. And then the next night, and he was having trouble sleeping. Um, and, and the next, the next night, you know, his wife would always go to sleep before him. He was trying to like read or make himself tired and he goes up the steps and, uh, he gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. You'll find that out when you get to be our age. You go to the bathroom at weird times in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. And so he gets, he gets out of bed and he's feeling a little dizzy. So he lies down again and his wife says, are you okay? Cause I guess he woke her up. And he goes, yeah. And then he gets up and he, he just faints again and falls face first on his marble bathroom floor. And there's a picture. He showed me the picture from that night, from the hospital room, rather. Um, he showed me that picture in his house. And then he sent me, I'm not sure it's exactly the same picture, but it's a picture I used in the book. It, it looks like he went 15 rounds with Ali with his arms tied behind his back. I mean, his face was completely black and blue. And it was from that point forward that uh, he just had a, a god-awful time with COVID. Now, his wife, who finished up her law degree at Harvard, so that we're talking about a, a, you know, a very intelligent woman. Now, she's not a doctor, but you know, she thinks the virus attacks the weakest part of the body. And in Mark's case, she thought it was his brain because of all the concussions that he had suffered uh, during his playing career. Now, that makes sense to me. I don't know if medically it's it's right or not, but it, it kind of makes sense. The virus never attacked his lungs. It, it attacked, you know, he, he had mental health issues as a result. You know, like you, you mentioned before, paranoia, depression, uh, trouble sleeping. Hmm. And... You know, the thing that was really fascinating to me, Ty, is, and I, I'm trying not to give away too much of the book, but um, th this is a story. Can't, I can't really tell it halfway. So I'm, I hope people, you know, still want to read the book to get the other details on it. But Mark played with Dave Dewerson at Notre Dame and with the Giants. And Dave Dewerson killed himself um, because it would turn out to be CTE. Mark finished up his career playing with Andre Waters in Philadelphia. Waters killed himself for the same reasons I just outlined for Dewerson. Bavaro got to know Junior Seau through uh, Bert Grossman. I don't know if you remember him. He was a defensive end for the Chargers. And so through Grossman, Bavaro and Junior Seau became friends. And Junior Seau killed himself for the same reasons as Dewerson and Waters. So there's a period there when Mark described his brain as being on fire. And he's sitting in his living room in the same chair that, that he was sitting in the day I was talking to him. And he said, and he could never understand how these guys who he's friends with, how life could be so terrible and the depth of despair that they were suffering from had reached a point where they were, they took their lives and left their families behind. How could that possibly happen? How can anybody ever feel that way? And Mark is sitting in that chair saying, I finally understand. And 
praying for a heart attack to die and have the intellectual side of him saying, you're going to get through this and you have a family that loves you. Get rid of those thoughts. And then he had the emotional side saying, how long can you stand on the edge? And this is his words. How long can you stand on the edge of a cliff before you finally jump? And fortunately, the intellectual side won out over the emotional side. And, you know, obviously everybody is happy for that. But, um, the, the injuries he suffered from falling face first in his bathroom was far worse than any football injury he ever suffered. And I've already told you about the broken jaw. We talked about how his career ended um, because of debilitating knee injuries. He actually played three more years after the Giants said you should never play again. Um, but it was it was COVID that was responsible for him suffering uh, the worst injury. And then like a, an addendum to the story. And I was able to put this in the book right before my deadline. And, and this is almost like, you know, piling on, like God was piling on here, but a year later he's feeling better and he's playing, he's playing golf, which is one of his passions. And he's playing with a buddy of his and his tee shot lands in the rough and he doesn't know what's underneath the rough, because it was like, I, I guess it was, um, loose grass or shrubbery or whatever. So he doesn't know what's underneath of it. So he chips the ball out of there and a rock jumps out of the shrubs as he hits the ball and it, it comes at him so fast he couldn't even close his eye or put his hand up. And he suffered, uh, a scratch retina. And he had to go back to the emergency room. And and this is after he had gotten through the worst and been months months removed from the worst of his long. It's called long COVID, as I learned. Yeah. Um, and he gets hit in the eye by a rock playing golf. I mean, as I say, it's like that was piling on already. I mean, leave the guy alone. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. I mean, like you said, everybody out there buy the book read the book there there's this and a hell of a lot more uh, i thought that that's what stood out to me most in the bavaro chapter is that that war between the intellectual side and the emotional side because i think you hear from afar you know when a former player has suicidal thoughts um i've talked to some myself i mean jamal lewis has been so open down those lines and but you don't really know how how, how you get to that point and you really eloquently, but in painstaking detail, kind of describe how Mark Bavaro got to that place and the war within. And I mean, he was trying, right? He was trying all these antidepressants and nothing oh, helped. Yeah. Nothing helped, right? They're telling him I mean, breathing I mean, exercises. That, that didn't help. No, I mean, the, the lineup of, and I described this in the book, you know, on the, on the counter in his kitchen or on the island in his kitchen, he had all the pills that were in his, current regimen of what he had to take every day and then he goes, ah, that's nothing and then he opened the closet and showed me all the pills that he had tried that didn't work I, I mean there had to be like a total of 
40 to 50 bottles of pills between what was out on the counter and what was in the closet. I mean, he was, he was desperate to find an answer. And, um, I mean, the paranoia was to the extent that he, he, he couldn't handle the hot weather. And he, he was petrified in the summer of 21 that it was going to get so hot in Massachusetts that the air conditioning in his house was going to break. He'd been living in that house for a while and he never had a problem with the air conditioning. But he had worked it up in his head that the air conditioning was going to break and the house would get so hot and he was going to get himself so anxiety ridden, uh, and he couldn't handle the heat that what was he going to do? So he went on, on Google and I can't remember if he found a place in New Hampshire or Maine because he was real close to the border there and it's all real close together. Um, he found a place that he, was, he and his wife were going to go to. And the further north you go in that in New England, the, the cooler it is. It wasn't going to be 60 degrees if it was 80 in Boston, but it might have been hmm. in the low 70s. So he had it all mapped out. They're going to get in the car and they're going to drive 75 miles or 100 miles or whatever to a, a place in New Hampshire, Maine. I think it was Maine um, to escape the heat because his air conditioning was going to break. And of course, his air conditioning never broke, and he was fine. But it—the it, mind is a can really play tricks on you, and especially when a, a virus is potentially attacking the brain. Is is they think that's what it was, and um, I, I, he's such a good guy. I mean, he really is a great guy, and um. I'm just happy that he, he got through this, you know, intact. I, I don't know that he'll ever be a hundred percent, but he, he's, he's gaining on that. And, um, he, he really, really suffered a lot. What about the, what about the aftermath of, um, kind of explaining this all to you and, and, and spilling his guts? I mean, th- 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 this is, I mean, a lot of news came out of your book, which is amazing. It speaks to the quality of it. But I mean, that that is something that kind of I mean, I'm driving around Western New York here. I put on Mad Dog Radio and Christopher Russo's breaking it down. It made it made waves. I'd imagine his phone's blowing up with with calls, with texts, um, people probably reaching out, like trying to help him in any way they possibly can. Have you caught up with him um, s- since the book came out and, and seen was it like therapeutic for him to discuss this all? Yeah, you know what? Um, when when the New York Post decided to do the excerpt, they asked me if I had any recent pictures of Mark, and, and I didn't. Um, so I texted with Mark, and I told him the Post was going to do the excerpt, and and he he texted me some pictures, and then I asked him a, a few weeks ago if he was interested in uh, doing a book signing with me and McConkie. And I wasn't exactly sure what he meant in his response when he said, I'm trying to put that all that stuff behind me. I don't think he was referring to, you know, the giant years. I think he was referring to um, his experience with COVID. Now, the book signing, he wouldn't have to address that. You know, people aren't going to be harping on that with him. But I, I guess... I, I haven't spoken to him. I've texted with him a bunch. So I don't know 
what the reaction was, especially in the post excerpt, because that really had an impact here in New York. But listen, I, I was really, I really felt good. I mean, I felt horrible about what he went through, but I, I felt really good that he, he trusted me enough uh, yeah. to tell me these stories. And Ty, I mean, you're a great reporter. You're just getting really rolling in your career. But the success that you've had is because you've built relationships with, with players and coaches and man, management that they know you, they can trust you. You're not, you're not out to screw them. And I think players always knew that about me. And, and I knew so many of these guys before I even thought about doing this book. So I had relationships with them. So it gave me a running start on this that I didn't have to learn who I was and whether they can trust me. And, you know, I, I didn't beat anybody over the head with questions. You know, tell me about the darkest time in your life. I never asked a question like that. It was just, you know, tell me about your experiences since you retired, you know, the good and the bad stuff. And I wanted, I wanted to hear the success stories like George Martin, who is an incredibly uh, successful businessman, and, and, and Carl Banks, who started this whole clothing line and now has – uh, sponsorship deals with, with the NFL and, and baseball and colleges and has done incredibly well for himself. Um, but in the course of the conversation, you know, Mavaro and, and, and Phil Sims was telling me stories about himself and, and, and Curtis McGriff, who I really didn't, he's the one guy I really didn't know uh, before I interviewed him. Um, I, I was really just, what made this book is that the players were so forthcoming with me. Um, it also helped me, to be honest, that when I left the Daily News in 2018, I had written five books at that point, but all of them were with the burden of having to write five columns a week for the paper. This book was all I did for two years. Yeah. And not having that everyday job hanging over my head and just being able to focus on researching and interviewing and reporting and, and then writing it. It, it was like exhilarating. Um, and plus I was just, I was sincerely really, really passionate about this subject. And I think, it's, I think it's a really important subject. And it's, you know, you don't have to care about the giants to want to read this book. This book really just details what players from that generation are all experiencing. Now each player is unique and with its problems, but you know, generally speaking, they're all going through the same mental health type issues and the physical issues and, you know, the financial issues. I guess chose to write about the 86 Giants, but this could have been about the 86 Packers or the 86 Bills or the 86 Cowboys or you name it. Um, so if you, if you care about players and, and what the impact on football has had on their lives, then you'd care about reading about the 86 Giants because it really illustrates what Pretty much, you know, I would ha I would venture to say majority of the players are going through. I'll even take it a step further. I think people who aren't even football fans would love this book. I mean, it really speaks to the human condition. Um, and I'm like I said, I'm about halfway through, and it's it's amazing. I, I really do believe that uh, everybody out there should stop watching TV. Right, Put, the Christmas movies can wait, the TV shows can wait. Just take an hour read a book and make it this one right here. Once a giant 
by Gary Myers. It's unbelievable. You said this is your favorite book out of you've written a ton. Brady versus Manning is the one that yeah. really. Uh, I mean, they've all been really successful, but that's probably been the most successful. That this is your favorite that you've done. Yeah, the Brady versus Manning is the only one that I've gotten on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm still hopeful that it'll happen for this book because it is selling really well. Yeah, I mean, I love the Brady Manning book because I thought it was a really good idea um, about that rivalry. And I really was inspired by watching a documentary that was based on Jackie McMullen's book about bird and magic. And I just, I was watching it that one night and I'm going, that's a great idea. What is the NFL equivalent to that? You know, was it United and Star or, I mean, I'm drawing a Staubach and, and Bradshaw. Yeah. And I go, no, it's, it's Brady and Manning because they faced each other so many times. And I almost got to write about it in real time because they, you know, Peyton hadn't yet retired and Tom was still going to play another 40 years after that. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I really did like that book a lot. And, um, so that was fun, but this one, this one is compelling. The Brady Manning book was a fun thing with a lot of insight and people didn't realize those guys were such good friends and I didn't realize it either. And that's what I, I kind of, you know, drew, was able to draw out of these guys is, okay, they're, they're heated rivals and they want to beat the snot out of each other every time their teams play. But they were on the phone all the time. They played golf together in the off season. Nobody knew that kind of stuff, and I found that really fascinating. But those those are just fun stories. This one, like you said, you know, really, it transcends football for sure, and I think it really shines a light on on what every player who's playing today, um, and those who were in high school and in college uh, should be thinking about is doing everything they can to protect themselves. And I, I'm not advocating people, anybody stop playing football but by any means. But you you can't just count on the team to protect you. you got to count on yourself. Um, now, it's gotten much better, Ty. I mean, listen, yeah. I've covered the league since 1978. And it used to be if a guy he got his bell rung, right, or he got dinged, they Take you over the sidelines. What's your name? My name is Tyler Dunn. Who you play for? I play for the Green Bay Packers. Where are you today? We're playing in Minnesota. Okay. Back in the game. That's all you had to do. Harry Carson described a head-on collision that he had with John Riggins that was almost paint the mental picture of two freight trains in opposite directions in a head-on collision. He was completely out on his feet, Harry was. I don't even know what happened to Riggins. I should have asked him. Um, Harry was so completely out on his feet, but wouldn't come out of the game. So he's in the huddle looking over for Belichick to signal in the defense. And um, Harry had no idea what Belichick was telling him to do. So, you know, when you want the, the signal to be sent in again, now you don't have to worry about it because you got the helmets. Um, you, they used to tap their helmets. They're mm-hmm. giving it to me again. And Gary Reasons, who was a rookie, and the Giants 3-4 defense played right next to Harry and knew all the terminology and the hand signals, 
he said, like, Harry, don't worry, I got you. And um, he was able to call the defense. And by the next play, at least Harry knew he was in RFK Stadium, which he probably had no idea about a minute and a half before that. And he didn't come out of the game. Unbelievable. He, he paid for it because he suffered terrible post-concussion syndrome in, in for many years after uh, he played. I'm probably getting off on a tangent here, but um, Harry Carson – was not, is not only the captain for life of the Giants. He's the captain for life of anybody who's ever played in the NFL. Cause at his 2006 induction speech in the Hall of Fame, he didn't talk about his career and his favorite coaches and his favorite teams and his teammates. He basically begged the NFL and the Players Association to take care of the players who built yeah. the game into what it was. And, and don't forget those guys because there's a lot of guys out there struggling and it's taken a long time. Those guys, when they retired, Ty, their medical insurance covered a year and a half. That's not when they need it. Now it's five years, and that's still not when they need it. They need it when they're 50. They need it when they're 50, not when they're 35 or 40. Um, it's only recently that players it used to, to qualify for your pension. It used to be years, three seasons, and three games. So you had to make it into your fourth season to qualify for a pension. So Bobby Johnson played three years. Didn't have a pension. They finally changed that about three or four years ago. He now collects 19000 and change every year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's better than what he was receiving for the first 30 years after his career was over, which was nothing. Jesus. So it, it, they're making some advancements in this, but... You know, then there's the whole issue. Should the NFL be responsible for the health of its former players in the, in their life after football? I mean, it, it's certainly a debatable topic. I mean, if I get carpal tunnel syndrome from all the typing I've done, that's an if, I don't have it. Um, is the Daily News responsible for any costs I have for surgery? That would have been a direct result a banging away on five columns a week for 29 years for the daily news. Right. So there are people who say, well, why should, why should the teams be responsible? Well, just think of all the money that the players make for these teams and, and what a small percentage it is for them to do the right thing and take care of them. You know, they have that billion dollar concussion settlement, but by the time you divide it up. Yeah. But all the players who have applied for it, you know, some of them are getting money that can pay for their medical bills and some of them aren't. And and the red tape for disability, I didn't really get into it that much in my in the book about this part of it. But the red tape for disability. Oh, it's shameless. Just, I mean, it's just it's cruel. I think that's the best word to say. It's yeah. cruel that yeah. these guys go through to try to collect any money. Oh. I've talked to Don Mikowski about that. You know, he was fighting as much as he could fight, but you know, deny, deny until you die, as they say, right? Yeah. Um, great point on Harry Carson, too. I, I had to look up the old story. I was down at the Hall of Fame. This was 2015, I believe. Just, I don't know what it's like now in Canton, but the best way to cover it was just kind of hanging out at the McKinley Grand Hotel in the lobby there, and all the Hall of Famers are passing it out, and Harry just sat down next to me. We talked for like an hour about life after football. 
Uh, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, all this, but how, you know, he was depressed, didn't know why, you know, he'd crossed the Tappan Z bridge from his home to the stadium. And there was times he just wanted to drive right into the guardrail into the Hudson river and kill himself. Right. Yeah. And he, he was, he wasn't even 30 years old at that point. Uh, and had no idea, but now is fairly certain it was because he had suffered concussions to that point, and he had mental health issues that he wasn't even aware of. Um, Harry, Harry's the best guy. I mean, he's genuine. He really does care about players, and um, I, I tell a story in the book that he was with his family in. Um, in Florence, South Carolina. I think it's like around 2002. And Jeff Rutledge, who was the third string quarterback on that Giants first Super Bowl team, had had a horrific car accident in Tennessee. He had taken his eyes off the road, looked down at his phone. Somebody texted him or was calling him or whatever. I think it was the days before we had you know, Bluetooth in the car that you don't yeah. have to, you know, the hands free stuff. And he looks up and there's an 18 wheeler staring him in the face. And he did all he can do was to swerve away from the 18-wheeler and hit a guardrail. And he fractured every bone in his face and was lucky to be alive. When Harry heard, while he was in South Carolina, that Rutledge had made it out of the hospital after a long period there, and he was back home in Nashville, Harry got in his car and drove eight hours, part of it through the Blue Ridge Mountains, which Harry just described as, you know, fairly treacherous. He drives eight hours to Nashville and shows up unannounced at Rutledge's door and and spends two hours with him and turns around and drives back eight hours to South Carolina. <laughs> and I said, Harry, and Harry wasn't, it wasn't like he was close with Rutledge, but he was a teammate. And that's all that mattered to Harry. And I said, so why do you do that? He goes, listen, these might have been Parcells' guys, but they were my guys too, and I just had to make sure he was okay. And that's the takeaway I think people will probably get from this book. Like you said, it's not just a collection of sad, depressing no. tales. There is a a thread through all these stories that is uplifting and inspiring and gives a little hope to humanity. Yeah. I just want to tell you one thing, just so the people who are viewing and listening to this, and I know most of the stories I've told, other than throwing up on Parcells' shoes, most of these stories have been, you know, oh, my God, I can't believe this. But there's plenty of fun stuff in the book. And the one story I'll tell you, because I think this is hysterical, is Friday night, a bunch of players, they would go out in groups into the city, which for those who aren't familiar with the geography around here, Giants Stadium, which is where they played at the time, and, and the MetLife Stadium is just in the same parking lot, so it's right there, is maybe seven or eight miles through the Lincoln Tunnel into Manhattan. And then you, you got the world's greatest playground for guys who are 25, 26 years old, uh, who are all well-known to go out and party. But the problem was, and Friday night was their night, but the problem was that Parcells had a 9 o'clock meeting on Saturday mornings that he wasn't happy about if anybody missed. And then if it was a road game, they go right from that meeting to the plane. If you missed the plane, you might as well just go into Parcells' office and sign your <laughs> papers that you got waived. 
So they came up with the idea, and I thought this was pretty ingenious, that, you know, they'd either take a car service into the city or they would carpool into the city or some guys drove by themselves. But instead of driving home, and Ty, not, nobody lived really far from the stadium. Everything was within 20 or 30 minute stops. But they didn't want to take a chance on sleeping through Parcells' meetings after drinking the night before. So around four o'clock in the morning, there'd be these, a caravan with these headlights driving into the players' parking lot at Giant Stadium. Each of these guys had already paid a locker room attendant 50 bucks to come knock on the window of their car at a quarter to nine, and they couldn't leave until the guy was up. Nobody <laughs> could be left in their car. And then, like, half asleep, they trudged down the little ramp um, from the parking lot um, into the stadium, and then they take a quick left and are in the locker room. But, you know, you have these locker room kids, you know, five or six of them, and a whole group of players paying 50 bucks each. That's pretty good side money. And for the players, it was a great deal because they didn't have to worry about, you know, going home and sleeping through an alarm clock. <laughs> it was the day before cell phones, days before cell phones. So you couldn't you have a backup plan on your phone to wake you up. So they took no chances and they slept in the parking lot. Which, That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. That story? I mean, how, how, how ingenious are these guys? I know. And, and they wouldn't stay out till four o'clock in the morning and morning and they go bar hopping and they'd be the most popular guys in the place. And they, the bouncers would let them cut lines because they were the New York Giants and, um, great stuff. I mean, lot, lots of fun stuff in there about Sean Landetta winding up at the, at the home of the Bob Guccione, I think his name is, who owned Penthouse and would have these amazing parties in the city. And then Dennis somehow wound up on the invitation list to every party and would leave with a different penthouse pet pretty much after every party. And he'd be a punter, right? Why am I the only athlete here? I'm a punter. I'm a punter. Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. It's, it's, it's incredible. And what's the best way for people to, uh, to, to buy your book? But where, where, where do you want to send them? Yeah. I mean, Amazon is, is the easiest. Uh, Barnes and Noble also has a great website and then, you know, the, the brick and mortar, as they say, um, bookstores now, um, like, uh, Barnes and Noble bookstores. And then I've been really happy to hear that a lot of independent bookstores around the country have my book also. And I hope so because I, I really yeah. think this is an important book addressing an important topic with a side order of some really funny stories. Well, we can't thank you enough for sharing as many as you did here, Gary. And uh, everybody out there, please do yourself a favor. Buy Once a Giant. You won't regret it. One of the best football books you'll ever read. So th thank you so much, Gary. This was great. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.